Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to today's Federalist Society virtual event. Today, February 7th, 2023, we are excited to present a litigation update in Groff v. DeJoy and the topic of religious liberty in the workplace. My name is Jack Capizzi and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are joined by Stephanie Taub, a senior counsel at First Liberty Institute, Blaine Hutchison, a staff attorney at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund, and Professor Bruce Cameron, who is a professor of employment discrimination at Regent Law. He is also an attorney at the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund. This is his 47th year with the foundation and his 16th year teaching at Regent Law. After our speakers have given their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen at any point, and we will handle the questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you all for being with us. Stephanie, the floor is yours. All right, wonderful. Thank you to the Federalist Society for hosting and to our friends Blaine and Bruce at National Right to Work for putting this webinar together. So today we're talking about Groff v. DeJoy, a case that the Supreme Court is has recently taken up, and it has the potential to restore religious liberty protections in the workplace. So this case provides an opportunity for the court to restore Title VII's protections for religious employees to what Congress intended before the courts watered it down. And we're essentially asking the Supreme Court to clarify the legal standard that applies when employees ask for religious accommodations. And so, in short, we're asking the court to apply the law as written and require employers to give meaningful religious accommodations to people of faith. Uh, right now, I'm going to go over a very brief case background, history, questions presented. Then I'll turn the floor over to Blaine to really dive into the legal issue here of what the undue hardship standard uh, means and what the arguments are in the case. So the lead counsel for Groff is... Um, Aaron Street at Baker Botts, my firm, First Liberty Institute, um, along with Baker Botts, joined the case at the Third Circuit. And also on the team are Alan Reinock of the Church State Council and Randy Wanger of the Independence Law Center, who've been with the case from the very beginning. So I'm also working on amicus coordination. So if anyone has questions about participating as an amicus, you can email us at amicus at firstliberty.org. All right, so a really brief background um, of turning to the facts of the case. Gerald Groff is a former post office employee. He's a, he was a mail carrier who wanted to stay faithful to God by observing the Lord's Day, the Sabbath on Sundays. And that's originally why he joined the United States Postal Service, because they were traditionally closed on Sundays. And he thought this was an opportunity for him to have a great career and also stay true to his religious convictions. And that all worked out well until USPS started um, a contract with Amazon to deliver packages on Sundays. And so for a time, it, it worked until Gerald's uh, post office began delivering on Saturdays. So he figured out a solution to be able to transfer to a post that had not yet started delivering on Sundays. And then that worked. And then they started delivering on Sundays. And then he figured out another solution to get someone to swap his shifts. He was willing to work additional shifts throughout the week. He was willing to work non-Sunday holidays. Um, and yeah, he even switched posts to be able to stay faithful to his religious beliefs. But ultimately though, the post office wasn't willing to provide him with a, an effective accommodation, um, even though it had accommodation options available. The simplest being swapping shifts in a way that would skip him in the Sunday rotation, which they did for a time without a problem. And we even have post office um, officials conceding that scheduling an extra mail carrier to take Groff's place on Sundays would not harm the post office. And so that's where um, that's where this case really gets really gets started. So after that, he was essentially forced out of his position and filed a lawsuit in 2019. 
The district court sided with the post office and concluded that it would be an undue hardship um, for the post office to um, to accommodate Gerald Groff, which we argue, of course, is um, was erroneous. And so then the Third Circuit affirmed on the basis of undue hardship. And then we brought the case before the United States Supreme Court. And so specifically, our uh, two questions presented are whether the court should disapprove the more than de minimis cost for refusing um, Title VII religious accommodations. Um, and that standard was first stated in um, a case called TWA v. Hardison from 1977. And so we're arguing that the court should disapprove the standards for reasons that um, my friends here will, will get into in the next section. And then whether the, the second question presented is whether the employer may demonstrate undue hardship on the conduct of the employee's business under Title VII by merely showing coworker impacts um, rather than business impacts. So our argument is essentially focusing on the harm to the business as a whole is the proper standard. It puts the uh, the burden on the business to find a solution that works for everyone, coworkers and people requesting the religious accommodation alike. So that's a um, that's a fifty thousand foot view of the case. Happy to uh, jump right into it. So I'm going to turn the floor over to Blaine to talk about um, the particular, the first legal issue, which is under TWA v. Hardison. Well, thanks so much, Stephanie. We really appreciate it. And thanks for joining as well. Stephanie was uh, willing to join at the last minute. So we appreciate that. The uh, The first question presented, we're really hopeful, uh, maybe even for a unanimous court on this issue, because uh, Title VII is very clear. What it says is that employers and unions must accommodate employees' religious beliefs and practices unless it would impose an undue hardship on the cost or the conduct of the employer's business. And so that phrase, the conduct of the employer's business, that's the focus, as Stephanie pointed out, and it's an undue hardship. And so... Uh, you know, undue hardship, most of us understand what a hardship is. Uh, you know, basic English, a hardship is something difficult. And the dictionaries, if you look at the 1970s, they're the same as today. Hardship has the same meaning. It's some suffering, something difficult to endure, um, some sort of challenge. But that's not enough. It's not enough that the accommodation is simply challenging. Congress required something more. It required it to be an undue hardship. And so undue, that's something that's excessive or inappropriate. And so uh, you can clearly see when the court said in Transworld Airlines versus Hardison, it, it just sort of says in the middle of the opinion, uh, without any explanation, it simply says that there's no need to accommodate in the case and that undue hardship means anything more than a de minimis cost. And so uh, this completely guts the statute. Uh, Marshall noted in his dissent, it made a mockery of Title VII. He says, although it sounds with uh, fire and fury and all of these great protections for religious employees, the majority waters it down to essentially mean almost nothing. And so, uh, you know, there's a few things I want to point out that have been said about it. I mean, we can all understand as lawyers, basic statutory interpretation, English language, undue hardship. It doesn't mean something more than the fractional part of a penny, right? It doesn't mean a, a de minimis cost. I, th I think we know that. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot that's been said about it. So the first time the court has, you know, really mentioned, you know, recently this growing tide to revisit Transworld Airlines versus Hardison and this um, undue hardship, uh, de minimis standard in Kennedy versus Bremerton. The first time the court remanded the case to the Ninth Circuit, there were four justices, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And as they closed their opinion, they noted that the parties didn't ask to revisit Employment Division versus Smith and Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. And so that was a glimmer of hope that the court might restore these really critical protections for religious employees that they rely on uh, to practice their faith and to keep their job. And so the next case that followed um, Bremerton is Patterson. So this was a case that directly implicated asking the court to revisit Hardison. And there was a lot of hope the court would take that case. In fact, the court asked the United States views and the Solicitor General said, yes, 
you should take this case. Hardison does not properly interpret the undue hardship statutory test. It's, it, uh, is, it conflicts with uh, Title VII and it takes away these important rights that employees rely on. Um, but nonetheless, despite um, the U.S. agreeing, there was some dispute about which questions the court should take. So the court decided we'll take none of them. Um, but there was a concurrence, a concurrence that was written by uh, Alito, and it was also joined by Thomas and Gorsuch. And so in the concurrence, uh, they agreed with the U.S. and they said a couple of important things. They said, first, uh, Hardison doesn't represent a likely interpretation of the statute. And I think that's an understatement. It's a, it, it isn't uh, a proper interpretation. But they also pointed out, uh, not only is it not in the briefs, not only does it not come from the parties in the case that all assumed, of course, undue hardship means much more than a de minimis standard. They point out, they point out the court gave no explanation, no analysis whatsoever for its basically offhanded remark that undue hardship means anything more than de minimis. Um, and so unfortunately the court didn't take the case, but there's uh, an important concurrence. Um, then there's two cases, uh, right to work. Uh, we've been involved as amicus and uh, trying to push back and protect employees specifically in this sphere. So we were involved as amicus and Patterson. Uh, we were involved as an amicus in Dalbury's. The court didn't comment about not taking Dalbury's, but at the same time, uh, Small versus Memphis Gas and Light went up to the court. And uh, justices, this time, instead of concurring in not taking the case, this time there was a spirited dissent, so written by Gorsuch. And Gorsuch uh, showed great displeasure the court didn't take the case. And in his words, he says, Hardison undid Title VII. Um, and so he had a lot to say that was very helpful and was uh, showed some frustration the court didn't take it. Also notably in small, um, as well as in this case, there was a great uh, concurrence actually written by the court below, the Court of Appeals. And small uh, just Judge Thapar and also Judge Kethledge, they wrote, even though that they were bound by Hardison, they stated Hardison rewrote the statute and pointed out uh, many problems with Hardison itself. There's also in this case uh, an argument below by Judge Hardiman who pointed out, especially on issue two, some real conflicts with the statute that are brought about by Hardison. And so um, there's a lot that's been said on it. There's been a growing consensus and push for the court to take this case that um, undue hardship has to mean more than something that's de minimis. And um, I'll say something as well just about this before we dive into why the court said what it said and some of the reasoning from Hardison. But in Hardison itself, even though the court says there's no duty to com accommodate if the cost is more than de minimis, Justice Marshall pointed out the cost would have been de minimis and Hardison to actually accommodate uh, Larry Hardison. He noted in the dissent, Transworld Airlines is one of the largest employers and airlines in the world at the time. And the dissent reads that it would have been $150 for three months. So I don't know if it's 150 total. Um, if someone knows they can correct me or if it's 150 each of those months. But his point was, this is a de minimis cost. This isn't even the fractional part of a penny for this huge employer. But the court made no effort to explain. It made no effort to elaborate. It simply said out of hand, uh, this is a de minimis cost. There's no requirement to accommodate. And so it said, you can fire this employee who simply like Roth in this case, wants to practice his religious beliefs. And so- Well, can uh, I just jump in yeah. here a minute? There's, there's another fact in the Hardison case, and that is that Hardison got in trouble because another employee went on vacation for two weeks. So theoretically, the record doesn't reflect it, reflect it, Justice Marshall says, but theoretically, TWA would have only been on the hook for overtime for two weeks. It's unbelievable. I mean, when you think about such a huge air carrier, what would be a hardship on it? A loss of a million dollars? A loss of a hundred million dollars. Now, what would it take to rock the stock of TWA? And the statute says not hardship, but undue hardship. It's ludicrous. Yeah, there's also uh, that's a great point, Bruce. There's also um, some analysis. I'm thinking about um, Professor uh, Michael McConnell and uh, Douglas Laycock that point out in this period of time, if you look carefully at the religion cases, there's not a lot of nice things said about the religious individuals <laughs> before the court. And in fact, you have to really puzzle and look hard to find anything that's really said about his religion. And there's almost this effort in, in Hardison, as you point out, to even blame it on the individual. They said, well, he was being accommodated and he transferred as if, as if this was his fault. Um, but you, you really puzzle and scratch your head when you hear 
um, sort of this top line holding that undue hardship means more than de minimis. And there are really two reasons behind it. And uh, Judge Thapar's concurrence in the Sixth Circuit, he lays this out very nicely. He says there's the stated reason and the unstated reason. Um, I think this is a really helpful way to understand everything the court did in Hardison. In some ways, Hardison, it's like the old joke, the mosquito and the nudist colony. You know, there's so much wrong with it. Where do you start? Well, it's, it's really all connected and it's connected to these two ideas. And so one is the philosophy of formal neutrality, and it's an utter and complete rejection of accommodation. What Hardison would not and did not accept is that Title VII the law requires accommodation to protect religious employees. And so um, contrary to an accommodation approach, which would require something like lifting burdens to protect religious employees, and that's, and that's doing so based on a protected class. Formal neutrality, that's the idea um, that you should treat everyone the same. So all, and there should be uh, no differential treatment that's based on a protected class. And so what does that mean? Well, a rule is formally neutral. If you say everyone works seven days of the week, well, why is it formally neutral? Well, um, it doesn't matter that some religious individuals can't exercise their faith. That doesn't matter. The rule itself applies to every protected class and it doesn't use a protected class as a category. So it doesn't say only religious people or only uh, women have to work seven days a week. It doesn't apply based on protected class. It doesn't use protected class. And so it's formally neutral. And, and really the theory for formal neutrality is that protected class is largely irrelevant. And so the best way to protect um, protected classes, so religious individuals, uh, women, immigrants, is simply to uh, prohibit employers from making decisions based on those protected classes. And so if an employer doesn't make a decision based on a protected class, in general, the presumption is that's something that's acceptable. And there's this, there's this underlying theory, this idea that immutable characteristics, something that a person can't change, those should not be a basis for losing a job or some sort of discrimination. So there's a distinction between what an individual chooses to do an employer may discriminate against them some personal choices and immutable characteristics, things like things like race and things like sex, those those things that make a person who they are that they can't change. And so Title seven is based and grounded on this uh, really canonical anti-discrimination idea of formal neutrality. And to some extent, uh, Congress has decided it works and it's acceptable. But there's a real problem for religion. The problem is, unlike other protected classes, at least Congress has determined, unlike other protected classes, religion uniquely involves conduct. And so it involves not just what a person believes, but what a person practices. In fact, uh, if you think about this, it'd be quite odd if you met someone that said, I'm an Orthodox Jew, but I don't do any of the things an Orthodox Jew does. <laughs> You'd puzzle a little bit. And the law recognizes the law has a sincerity requirement. Sincerity is because you look in general, well, what does a person do? And that shows and matches up sincerity. So religion, it has to involve belief and conduct. And the problem with formal neutrality, it only really protects religious belief because what it means is a person, they can believe. So religious status is protected, but not their choices, not their conduct. And it's, it's hollow. So a person like Groff, they can believe uh, what they want to believe, but if they try to practice it, they lose their job. And so that's a very difficult place for employees to be in. And Congress recognized this difficulty. And in fact, that's why it amended Title VII. And so there are two cases in particular that motivated Congress to amend Title VII, Dewey and Riley. And I think they nicely illustrate um, the theory of formal neutrality and how it absolutely conflicts and repudiates the philosophy or approach of accommodation, which is protecting individuals based on a protected class. So um, both of those cases, just like Hardison, um, they involved Sabbatarians, individuals that they wanted to observe their, sa their Sabbath, and they had a conflict with their work roles. And in both cases, the court held that just like Hardison, no discrimination occurred at all. And the reason there's no discrimination, even though minority individual, this, this religious individual was fired for trying to practice his religious beliefs, they said, well, the rules are neutral. Why? Because the rules don't mention religion, the rules that say when you're supposed to work and, and what you're supposed to do at work, and they apply to everyone. So they're formally neutral. And there's this really great line. Um, there's there's two great lines to point out in, in uh, each of these cases. And one, Riley says basically that religious employees, they must either conform to the workplace 
or seek other employment. So in essence, religious choices, they're personal choices, and it's totally okay to force religious employees to compromise their faith and compromise their religious beliefs. And then Dewey follows and, and basically uh, applies the same reasoning, the same logic, similar statements, but goes a step further and says accommodation is discrimination. And it says it would be discriminating against other employees to accommodate. And then it goes uh, another step and it would say it would constitute unequal administration of the collective bargaining agreement to accommodate the religious individual. And that's really important because the collective bargaining agreement is essential. It's an important part to Hardison, an important part potentially in this case. Um, but sometimes it's forgotten that Dewey had a collective bargaining agreement. It was a central part of the court's reasoning for discrimination and formal neutrality. It's the idea there's another neutral rule here. Um, Congress completely repudiated, rejected those decisions. Congress said religion needs something more. And so uh, they required accommodation under Section 701J in 1972. And that amendment states it's a definitional section. So it defines religion and states that religion includes not only religious belief, but also religious conduct, religious observance, religious practice. And so it bakes that in to the discrimination provision. And so what that means is an employer discriminates when they refuse to accommodate. And so there's no more formal neutrality. It's not only repudiated, but the idea of uh, conduct and status, the separate idea between belief and practice, that's completely gone. Congress eviscerated that and it, it completely collapsed this distinction. Hardison, um, despite Congress, despite the legislative history, they included Dewey and Riley in the amendment to show that these are decisions we wanted to reject despite the specific amendment to require accommodation the court nonetheless basically applies dewey and riley wholesale so the court said there's no unlawful discrimination because uh hardison was treated the same though all protected groups were treated equally even though again a sabbatarian here one of the few in his workforce perhaps the only one was fired for his religious beliefs the court said this isn't discrimination and there's really an amazing statement just as the statement above about undue hardship and de minimis is uh, difficult to understand the court goes so far as to say that the work rule the seniority provision that caused hardison to lose his job was itself a significant accommodation and so it's, it's hard to understand how, how he should view the thing that fires him as an accommodation. But the court explained that, well, this is a wonderful thing because it's neutral. We're treating everyone the same way. And so this is all good and fine. And um, I reread Hardison, you know, for the panel and it, it's striking. Uh, I think at least three times Hardison says the focus of Title VII is treat, uh, treating similarly situated employees the same way. In other words, reframing formal neutrality. We should treat people the same way. We shouldn't treat people differently based on protected class and it utterly rejected accommodation. And um, as it closed, it continued to say things throughout like this. But I think uh, most starkly in its final paragraph, it says that to accommodate here would actually be discriminating because you would be violating formal neutrality. You'd be treating people differently based on protected class. And that's what Title VII forbids. That's not what Title VII is about. So I think this lens is really helpful because number one, Congress has said you have to accommodate. It requires an accommodationist approach. It requires an accommodation philosophy and logic. Arson utterly rejected that in all ways. And even the, uh, the de minimis standard, it's really trying to repeat uh, this neutrality view. It's any effect, which we're going to talk about on coworkers, or on the business, basically anything that deviates from neutrality, we're going to reject that. So I'm next, Blaine. Yeah. The, que the question then is, why did the Supreme Court and Hardison do what they did? Are they all fools and incompetence? You know, the, the dissent said the reason why Hardison ruled the way it did was because they were concerned about the Establishment Clause. The problem was the majority was simply too polite to mention it. The dissent, however, mentioned it and said, well, this is what's going on. And the, the majority should have considered the, uh, the Establishment Clause because, and the dissent cites a number of cases, they say Title VII and its accommodation requirements are constitutional. Now, this was actually a big issue back then because for a while, in every federal district court to have considered an accommodation case had ruled Title VII to be an unconstitutional establishment of religion. And every circuit court 
on appeal said, no, it's not an establishment uh, problem. But not too long after Hardison, about eight years later, the Supreme Court decided a case called uh, Thornton v. Calder, which was a Connecticut case involving uh, absolute requirement of accommodation for Sabbatarians. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that is an establishment violation. And so, you know, these issues were, were out there uh, then. However, shortly after Calder, that is in, in uh, 1987, two years later, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called uh, Corporation of Presiding Bishop versus Amos. It was a case involving a clash between the religious beliefs of the Latter-day Saints Church, the Mormon Church, and its employees. And uh, the Supreme Court said, it is right for us to make an exception for religion, and it's right for us to make an exception for the religious faith and practice of the church when it's in conflict with the religious practice of its employees. And so in, in, uh, in Hardison, we had a clash between what? The, the faith of the employee and the rights of other employees to go fishing, you know, on, on, on Saturday. But in Amos, it was a clash with religion on both sides. And the Supreme Court said this is not an establishment of, of religion. And so I think it's very clear today that Title VII and its accommodation provisions are not unconstitutional. So the question then becomes, is there some sort of exemption for the collective bargaining agreement. Now, this is a, a serious issue. In its uh, cert response, the government argued that it would be a violation of the MOU, uh, Memorandum of Understanding. It's another name for a collective bargaining agreement. It's the union contract. It would be a violation of the union contract to uh, accommodate Groff because it would violate the uh, the seniority uh, provision. And the government said that it had specifically preserved this issue below. And so there's no question in my mind, I mean, obviously the government has not filed its brief yet in Groff, but there's no question in my mind that they are going to argue that. And so this collective bargaining agreement and the seniority provision, I think are front and center. So the question is this, Hardison suggests that if an accommodation would violate a collective bargaining agreement, there is essentially a presumption that that is an undue hardship. We're just going to say if it violates the collective bargaining agreement, the employer is released from accommodating. But it seems to me that makes no sense because what, after all, is a collective bargaining agreement? A collective bargaining agreement is uh, a decision between the employer and the employees to have a certain rule. So if an employer alone creates a rule and it is required to accommodate or at least attempt an accommodation, then why is an agreement of the employees sacrosanct? You know, why, why should that, that change things? It seems to me that, that in fact, there is a serious problem when you're looking at this issue of whether or not you should uh, protect, give special protection for a seniority agreement. What, after all, is a seniority agreement? Isn't it an agreement that employees have to get in line? I mean, isn't that really what this boils down to? You get in line. And we have get in line rules all the time in society. And it's a very weak reason to give someone a reward. Anyone who's flown on an airline knows that you get in line, but they let people with small children, people with disabilities, people in the military, people who have uh, flown on their plane before a number of times, they all get to go ahead of you. So how is this a, a, a strong reason? You go to a restaurant, you get in line. They determine when you actually get seated based on the number of people in your in your party, right? I mean, so when you look at how, how society deals with this, the idea of getting in line as the basis for a reward is, 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 is pretty weak. There's some other problems with the idea of basing this on getting in, in, uh, in line. What about employment decisions themselves? If you had a get in line rule, 
the senior employee would always be promoted. Well, that'd be pretty good for me because I've been 47 years with the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. But it doesn't make any sense from a merit point of view. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And so it seems to me that not only is there an obvious problem with a get in line rule, but a get in line rule also tends to hold down wages, just like non-compete agreements for low level employees. Because what does it say to an employee? It says that if you decide to go to another employer to increase your wages, that you now what? You've lost your place in line in the new employer and you've lost your place in line in the old employer. And so uh, this this really is a way to uh, hold down, down wages. Even in collective bargaining agreements, they don't carefully uh, protect the seniority agreement. Um, there's something known in most uh, collective bargaining agreements as super seniority which means that union shop stewards uh, get to uh, cut in line when it comes to reductions in force. They, they get to go to the back of the line, so they're not reduced. What's the reason for that? They somehow think it's a benefit to the union to have their shop stewards around. So that's an exception to the get in line. There's another exception to get in line, and typically in, in collective bargaining agreements, and that is the reduction in force agreements. When you're deciding how to reduce employees, they generally have in that agreement a bumping rule that the senior employee can bump the junior employee and keep the senior employee's job, but it requires that the senior employee have a level of competence in that job. And so uh, I, I think that um, the idea in the abstract, just as a practical matter, the seniority agreements should be protected is a very weak when you look at both the collective agreement scenario and in society as as a as a as a rule. The real evil, though, the real problem with the seniority agreement and the collective bargaining agreement is that it comes from exclusive representation. That is, Congress, government has created a rule which says that every employee in the bargaining unit is divested of their right to represent themselves. And instead, a union, a union that the individual employees did not all choose, gets to represent them instead. Now, this is completely antithetical to common law. And this is a violation of the anti-monopoly provisions because this is a monopoly in, in the, the workplace. And so this is the genesis for this idea that collective bargaining agreements somehow give passes to union and employer rules. And the Supreme Court, in, in our case, Janice versus AFSCME, uh, said that exclusive representation is, quote, a significant impingement on associational freedoms that would not be tolerated in other contexts, end quote. That's uh, the court at uh, page 2478. Uh, I think Title VII is such a context. And why is that? What's the reason for Title VII? The purpose of Title VII was to protect minority rights. What is the purpose of a collective, the exclusive representative? It is to represent majority rights and by its nature, exclude minority rights. I mean, if the majority is acting on behalf of the minority, they have failed in, in their task. So instead, as Hardison suggests, that there should be a presumption protecting a collective bargaining agreement. It seems to me that there should be a presumption that if a rule is collectively bargained, it's hostile to Title VII and it's hostile to minority rights. And so there should be a presumption that these are invalid as opposed to being uh, valid. And if you've been around as long as I have, uh, you know the dark history of organized labor and discrimination against women and African-Americans. It's really rather outrageous what has happened in the past in, in the name of the, the, the majority. So 
I say that instead of the collective bargaining agreement automatically giving a pass to employers on accommodating, that the collective bargaining agreement should be presumed to be a violation of Title VII because it is a majoritarian rule, which is antithetical to the purpose of Title VII. All right. What about co-worker exemptions. Uh, Can I jump in to, sure, to go ahead. <laughs> right, great. just to clarify a little bit of the party's argument here with respect to the collective bargaining agreement. So we're arguing that the court really doesn't need to get into this, um, the collective bargaining agreement and its application here um, because the Third Circuit below didn't address it at all. It was not the basis for their finding undue hardship. And it actually and it makes sense because the way that Gerald Groff's um, his position was structured is that it didn't have it didn't assign Sunday shifts based on seniority at all. It was a um, just a, ran a random selection. So seniority doesn't come into issue here. So we argue even if you do address it, it didn't violate the collective bargaining agreement. And that might be why the Third Circuit didn't address it, didn't rely on it. And so the court, really the normal course of action here is to, we're asking the Supreme Court, it's a very modest ask, to clarify what the proper interpretation of undue hardship is. And then they can remand back down to um, figure out how that applies in every any particular, or in this particular factual context. Um, and so... The question is, what? how do you interpret undue hardship? And we're really saying, so we've spent most of the time saying what it's not, which undue hardship does not mean minimal hardship. Undue hardship, we're arguing, should mean significant difficulty or expense, which is how it's been interpreted in several other statutes that require um, employee accommodations, such as the um, Americans with Disabilities Act. They define it in that term. So just as a matter of plain statutory interpretation, undue hardship should mean the same thing in the these different similar contexts. Um, and so we're arguing that it should be given the same interpretation that it's given in many other employment accommodation contexts. We've seen it even as recently in, um, in bills that have been introduced about um, pregnancy accommodations or nursing mother accommodations. So this is... Um, so that's focusing on the Hardison standard, and then remanding back down is is what we're um, what we're advocating for. You know, I, I've had this discussion, Stephanie, with with uh, Baker and Bot's uh, lawyers, and I think they're wrong. <laughs> and 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 the, the reason why I think they're wrong is if you look at the opinion, the opinion actually talks about the rotational basis for assigning Sunday work. That rotational basis is part of the collective bargaining agreement. That is, it, it was agreed upon by the union. And if you look at the government's petition, the government specifically argues that it is the collective bargaining agreement that, that saves uh, the the government from having to to accommodate. So I guess, you know, well, it's a matter of predicting the, the future. But my prediction for the future is based on what the government said in their cert petition. And I think that's a pretty good indicator of what they're going to say on, on the merits. So I think the collective bargaining agreement is going to be front and center. Clearly in Hardison, the collective bargaining agreement was given special uh, privileges. And so we'll see. I mean, it, would it be easier for you not to have to break the collective bargaining agreement? Absolutely. Go for it. I don't think the forces on the other side are going to let you get away with that. <laughs> well, they've made statements below. If you look at the record where they're saying that it, they, they previously took the position that it didn't violate the collective bargaining agreement and the Third Circuit didn't even address it. So we think there's a very good. Um, so that we're arguing that the court really doesn't need to get into all of this um, and really just clarifying what. Um, that undue hardship means the same thing in the religious context as it does in any other um, any other context when you need uh, employment accommodations in order to have equal opportunities in the workplace. Um, but I think that is a good segue for turning into issue two, which is the impact on coworkers argument. Yeah, right. I, I just want to want to say one thing, too, as well. Um, 
you know, in some ways, I'm really hopeful the court will get rid of all of Hardison and not retain any of it because it all harms employees. So we're so hopeful that, you know, you'll win on issue one and on issue two. Um, but really, it's two sides. You know, my view is it's two sides of the same coin. It's really, you know, the coin is this formal neutrality dispute, the establishment clause, right? It says that um, you know, it has to be de minimis because we can't deviate from neutrality. So an accommodation is a CBA. An accommodation is anything another employee can get. But any sort of special treatment, anything different than that, we're going to forbid. We're going to rely on neutral rules, even though accommodation says you need an exception for neutral rules. And then it turns around and tries to defend its decision in Hardison. Well, a CBA is a super neutral rule. So we're going to sort of double down on our wrong approach that conflicts with accommodation. And so um, it, it really hurts employees. And, you know, as Bruce mentioned, you know, there's this larger point about what does Title VII do? Title VII was passed for the precise point because uh, some workplaces don't want to accommodate and prefer to discriminate. That's the precise reason Congress stepped in and said, we're going to invade the private sphere to require uh, a certain level of treatment for employees. And so to turn around and say, well, um, all the employees want to fire the Afri African-American employees in 1964, that would not have been an allowed defense or all the employees, uh, they don't want to hire women. So we're not going to hire women. But Hardison allows because it says it's discriminatory and you have this neutrality lens of uh, comparing protected classes. They say, well, we can basically say if all the employees don't want to accommodate, want to fire Groth, that's fine. Or if all the employees want to fire Hardison, that's no problem at all. A collective bargaining agreement simply takes these discriminatory preferences and it adds another layer, essentially, of discrimination. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same lens. And I think that kind of moves us you know, thinking about issue two, uh, you know, there really shouldn't be any exception, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, we're arguing here for coworkers, discriminatory preferences, especially when they're written down. I mean, what difference does it make whether they're just, uh, you know, they vote on firing the religious employee or they write it down with the employer? Yeah, Blaine, can I add a, a point uh, about this idea of the popularity of, of Title VII? When in 64, when they passed Title VII, a senator put into the bill protection for women. He did not have that in the in the draft. And he did it as a poison pill. He thought it was so unpopular that they would give equal rights to women that that would certainly cause Title VII to be lost. And so that gives you an idea what the you know general population thought at the at the time. And so Title VII was clearly contrary to majoritarian uh, interests and the idea, as as you've stated before, Blaine, of giving employees a heckler's veto is precisely contrary to Title VII. Absolutely, and Judge Hardiman's dissent in the Third Circuit um, goes into that in, in really good detail. So if anyone's looking for more on that argument, point you in that direction. Well, you know, I, I don't let, let me give a, what I think is perhaps the most compelling argument about concern about co-workers and American society. Since the Civil War, the United States has recognized exemptions for religious objectors to combat. And when you look at the, the Welch and Seeger case, you see that religion is very, very broadly defined. And what is the, the effect on coworkers, coworkers? What is the effect on others of giving a religious exemption to combat? It is that the other people face being killed or maimed or face a lifelong disability. And so, you know, when you talk about the the co-worker downside of accommodating uh, Mr. Groff, maybe they can't go fishing that Sunday, you know, or, or maybe they're going to miss a, a family picnic or something. It pales in comparison to the historic concern that the United States has had, you know, since at least the, the, uh, the Civil War to protect religious belief in the military context. Well, I think we're getting close to the end here um, for questions. I'm skimming through. It looks like we have a handful of questions. Um, Stephanie, is there anything you want to add about issue two? 
Yeah. So I think just a good way to look at it is to remember who who really has the power to make these accommodations and figure out what's the best way to to make this work. It's it's the employer, especially if we're talking about big employers like big corporations and um, big government agencies. A lot of times they have the ability to make um, accommodations that may not occur to the, um, the particular employee that's requesting the accommodation. So some things like transferring to different positions that are um, that are available or maybe rearranging the schedule in a way that um, that will really be a win win for everyone. And so allowing people to point only to coworker impact as um, as kind of a get out of jail free card um, that can let employers get off the hook without really trying to find a good solution. So the, the what we're advocating for is this significant difficulty or expense on the business standard is putting the burden back on the employer to try to make it work for their business. And if it really can't, then it really can't. But if, if you can make it work, if you can provide these equal opportunities to everybody, providing these religious accommodations, and then that really could be a win-win scenario. Um, so that's, um, yeah, that's, that's what I had to say about question two. And this is a really important case that has the potential to impact employees of faith across the country and just restore these religious liberty protections. So we're very excited about this opportunity. Oh, the oral argument is going to be April, April 18th. Yeah. Stephanie, can, can I, can I uh, uh, opine on this? Uh, the significant difficulty standard that, that you mentioned comes from the ADA. And I think that's a bad standard to argue because what are you trading? You're trading undue hardship for significant difficulty. Is a difficulty as bad or as high a, a mountain to climb as hardship? I don't think so. Is it undue hardship? Is is that as just a matter of you know English usage? Is is that a lower standard than significant difficulty? I say, and and in fact, the last question in our group is you know what should the Supreme Court do? How should they draw the line? I think undue hardship, understood appropriately, you know, and consistently with the English language, is the correct standard because. You say to the company, you have to show a hardship. And more than that, you have to show that the hardship is undue. Now, you know, you can't require an absolute accommodation, but it seems to me that it has to be uh, a significant, uh, significant, it has to be uh, uh, an obligation that creates a hardship for the employer plus and that would be the undue hardship. And so I think the, the current language works. I don't think the ADA substitution uh, helps. If anything, in the hands of a creative judge who is hostile to religion, it will diminish the rights of employees of faith. Well, I appreciate where you're coming from. I think the, when we're arguing that the significant difficulty or expense is getting at that, it's getting at what undue hardship means. Undue hardship certainly doesn't mean minimal hardship. It means a significant difficulty or expense considering the factors on the business. And so... I mean, well, respectfully disagree about about what the proper interpretation is, but we do. It seems like we do agree that it needs to be a very robust standard to implement what Congress had intended, and it needs to be given some sort of a definition. Because right now, without a, a replacement definition, courts might fall back on this de minimis standard, which is which has gutted religious protections for people of all faiths for decades. So well, I agree with you completely. I mean, the de minimis de minimis interpretation of undue hardship is 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 ludicrous. I mean, as I mentioned before, if you're looking at Transworld Airlines, either the largest or second largest air carrier at the time, what would what loss would be a hardship on it? Clearly not a million dollars. I mean, you know, you, you might even look at the accounting rules when you're doing an audit where accountants say, well, you know, we don't even have to look at this area because because this amount of money doesn't make any difference to the accuracy of our, our final review. So I would say that in the TWA versus Hardison, anything under a million dollars would not be an undue hardship for Transworld Airlines. And they should have they should have been required to accommodate this guy at 
$150 or more likely, because it's not reflected in the record, the two-week overtime. I mean, this is this is a rounding error, right? For, yeah, it's for TWA. Factually similar here because the main time period that we're looking at is the time period around the Christmas holiday, around the December holidays. Um, and so this is the time when there's a, if he's scheduled on a couple of those Sundays, they might have trouble. But that there are several different ways that the post office could fix this problem. And um, we're, and we're arguing that they simply just didn't want to because because they had this idea of the formal neutrality that you were talking about earlier. Um, and that that because they had this idea, they couldn't see that some people need these religious accommodations in order to have access to these, these jobs. Otherwise, they could be barred from large sections of the workforce but, if they're not given meaningful religious accommodations. Yeah, Linda, you, you raise a very important point here. This is a big issue for Sabbatarians who are in the delivery business. This is the Sturgill case that came out of the Eighth Circuit where a guy had his Sabbath from sundown Saturday to sundown, uh, uh, excuse me, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and they were doing deliveries around the holidays. So you not only have a shortened day, you know, from sundown to sundown, but you have a high volume. And so this is a specific problem for Sabbatarians. Yeah, Abercrombie is something we haven't talked about as well, but Abercrombie really puts, uh, you know, it says that Hardison's reasoning is wrong and Abercrombie does approach it from the perspective of formal neutrality, but it says that accommodation special treatment. So there's certainly a way, as Stephanie talked about, um, I, you know, Special treatment or favored treatment is nice language, but I actually prefer to go back to if you look at Sherbert versus Werner, Justice Brennan says accommodation is nothing more than neutrality in the face of religious differences. And even in Hardison, the United States amicus brief said, look, all these protections are trying to allow ultimately religious employees to join the workforce like every other protected class. And so Groff simply wants to be able to work like every other protected class. And in Hardison, what did he want? He wanted to work the same way women could work, the same way African-Americans and immigrants, and simply wanted to do that and practice his faith. And that's what this case is really about. It's about these critical protections. So, uh, you know, just a couple quick notes. I was looking through the chat. A couple of people have asked, and we've talked about um, you know, could they avoid overruling Hardison, given maybe there's a de minimis standard? And uh, I apologize for that. Um, but really what's gone on here from Hardison is the de minimis standard has allowed any cost whatsoever as a per se rule in the lower courts to reject these critical protections for religious employees. So, you know, $150, even any cost, a lot of times it's rejected by employers, it's rejected by others. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's likely that we get a large or perhaps consensus in issue one. It's been so harmful and it deviates so sharply from Title VII. Yeah. One, one of our questions is uh, whether or not the chief is going to assign the uh, opinion to Justice Kagan to forge five votes. Uh, we've been seeing a series of victories in favor of religion. And, and sometimes a five vote, sometimes more. And so I don't think that is a significant uh, risk that uh, that uh, Kagan is going to be writing this opinion. Um, instead, I, I think that there's going to be, uh, well, since we have, it seems four justices that have already indicated a desire to relook at Hardison, I think we're going to have uh, more than five on our side. We're very optimistic about that. Even the other side doesn't seem to be really defending Hardison, because as you mentioned, the Solicitor General has filed a brief uh, criticizing Hardison in the past. And on this at the search stage, they weren't arguing a defense of Hardison. They were just questioning. They were just saying, don't take this one to overrule Hardison, but take maybe another one. So that's um, there's not really a lot of defenders of Hardison these days. I think they were in a little bit of a box because the uh, Solicitor General's office President Trump said, yes, take this. And so 
You know, it's small in the brief in opposition. They, in fact, admit, I think their language is we admit Hardison is not the best gloss on titles <laughs> <laughs> and they're supposed to be defending it. So, uh, you know, even the defenders aren't defending Hardison. And, and that's why, you know, potentially may rely on this co-worker impact. Some of these other theories that, as Stephanie points out, another comment from Abercrombie, Abercrombie says you can't add words to the text of the statute to make it do what you want to do. The text says here, undo hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. It doesn't say uh, hardship on a union or a CBA or coworkers or anything else. It requires accommodation unless it would you know, impose some great expense on the business. There's another question here it says, was the proposed swapping voluntary on the part of the employee would then be required to work on Sunday instead of the, the plaintiff, uh, the swaps were voluntary, right, Stephanie? That's my understanding of the of, of the record. And that's part of the problem because a person who had voluntarily swapped fell ill and could no longer swap. Yeah, so this, this whole time period took place over the course of about four years. Um, so there were voluntary swaps and there were times when people were, when they, uh, Groff was skipped in the rotation. Um, so there's, a, there's several options that were available and the times when he was swapped in the rotation um they were asked the corporate representative was asked during the deposition if this caused harm to usps by scheduling someone else especially during those times and they said no it didn't cause harm so that should um that should resolve the undue <laughs> hardship question um but there are the I mean, the simple fact of the matter is there were several ways to accommodate him without causing significant difficulty or expense or undue hardship as even as you as mean as you define it under your more even more rigorous standard then this is um so it's absolutely time for the court to readdress the, <laughs> this standard return us to the original meaning and then um and and then we hope that this case will be resolved well, maybe just one final note um someone asked about people making insincere claims and this is sometimes a point of pushback when it comes to accommodating protecting religious employees the argument as well it would cause mayhem there's sort of these arguments in free exercise smith world or here well what about all of these people that might come up with these you know quirky ideas uh, but two things. One, religion often imposes great difficulty and expense on the actual adherent. <laughs> so real, you know, Sabbatarians know this and they've said this for a long time. Um, you know, they don't believe that they have the choice to pick what day of the week is convenient for them. It's inflexible. And then secondly, we do have a sincerity test, which is interesting because the camp that's often hostile towards religion and basically on one hand says there's no relationship between uh, what you believe and what you do. They, on the other hand, turn around and love to say, what does the religious person do here? So there is a sincerity test. There is an ability to figure out whether a person's sincere and at least under uh, free exercise and similar statutes, uh, our lupa, for example, courts have been readily able to distinguish between sincere religious beliefs. Uh, you know, prisoners come up with great ideas like my religion requires filet mignon at every meal. You know, courts are readily able. They've they've I'm not and cat food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need my uh, ceremonial dagger in prison. I mean, there's all sorts of these courts are equipped to handle it. Um, you know, but I think as we're all you know saying this is such a critical case to protect employees, allow them to exercise their religion in the workforce. And so uh, we're all optimistic that we will have uh, great success on issue one and two. Yeah, blame. Do, do we want to look at this? The very first question on this, someone raises the Respect for Marriage Act and says, could Groff have an impact on that? The answer is absolutely, because the Respect for Marriage Act may very well create problems for employees of faith in the workplace. And, and therefore, it seems to me that by restoring the true statutory standard for uh, minority rights, religious minority rights, is going to help employees in all sorts of contexts, including that one. Yeah, my understanding is that particular act might not affect Title VII statutes, but there are different contexts. And it certainly is not just a Sabbatarian 
issue, there are other um, other um, like people of various faiths have have um, sincere religious needs that need to be accommodated. Abercrombie is a great example that had to do with uh, an employee at Abercrombie who was required to wear a hijab, um, but she was um, discriminated against because Abercrombie had this supposedly neutral policy where you couldn't wear any head coverings, any hats, um, and they weren't willing to make even the minor <laughs> religious accommodation. And so there's great language in Abercrombie that about how it's important to provide religious accommodations for, for employees of faith. Right. Abercrombie and Hardison cannot reside in the same box. Right. Maybe just one uh, one final note and give a little bit of, a, you know, CBA right to work, work plug here. You know, the person asked about um, would Groff affect the constitutionality of this statute? Religious accommodations, they don't affect neutral work rules. So Abercrombie clarifies, you can have a no headwear policy. You can do a lot of these things you want to do. You can have even CBAs. What we've learned, and Bruce and I represent individuals with religious objections to compelled union support, that the CBA doesn't trump Title VII. You can still have your CBA, but what Title VII does, what free exercise, all the accommodation for religion does, is it allows religious employees to simply exercise their faith on the same basis as other protected classes or live in society like other individuals do and maintain their sincere religious beliefs. Well, I think that that's uh, definitely a, a good point to end. If uh, none of you have anything else to, to say, we might wrap up. Well, thank you so much for hosting. Absolutely. Yes, we thank the Society. Absolutely. Yes. I'll say on, on behalf of us, we thank you all for joining us today and providing your expertise. Um, uh, as always, we do welcome feedback at info at fed-soc.org. Um, and please keep an eye on our website and your emails for upcoming events. That'll be all for today. Thank you guys for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.